It's for us to sing this Wednesday evening straight out of the Psalter, reflecting and reminding ourselves that the Lord's love endures forever. That's good news for us. We welcome you this Wednesday evening to our adult Bible study here at Twin City Bible Church, where we are presently in the midst of studying through the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation. Tonight we come to chapter 10 in our study, and as you make your way there in your Bible, we can entitle tonight's study, Preparing for Destruction, and we should ask for the Lord's help as we dive into this chapter tonight. Great God of highest heaven. We come before you this Wednesday evening thankful that we can gather with your people, thankful that you have spoken in your word, thankful that you've given us such a great, glorious salvation, thankful that your love endures forever. There's none like you, there's none beside you, O Lord. Help us this Wednesday evening to see your glory afresh by means of the chapter before us as we approach this book that is supernatural in origin, coming from you, your very speech. We need your spirit to be our help and teacher tonight. Forgive us for our sin, cleanse us from our unrighteousness. We're thankful for the good news that if we do this, you are faithful and just to forgive us. Now we look to your word asking for your blessing. Teach us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight we come to Revelation chapter 10. So we continue our journey through this, chap- or through this book. It's about that time, if you're paying any attention to any professional sports right now, where the NHL playoffs are about to begin. We're not going to go around the room and single anybody out if you happen to be a hockey fan, but we will say if you're not and you're looking for something exciting, tune in to the NHL playoffs. The next few days, the season's going to complete, the teams will all be settled, determining then who will advance and then the playoffs will begin. I bring up this specifically, although we could bring up any really athletic event. If you know anything about hockey, there are three periods in the NHL, each 20 minutes each. And of course, after the first period and after the second period, do you remember what takes place? The brief period known as an intermission, where play will officially halt. The game does not advance. The teams head to their locker rooms, Usually you see that marvelous invention known as the Zamboni trot out onto the ice. If you're at a professional game, typically two to speed up the process as the ice is all cleaned. The players head to the locker room. It's their opportunity to catch a breath, to think about what has just happened, to then regroup and think about what's to come in the next period. It's the opportunity for fans, if you're there in attendance, to get up, stretch your legs, maybe get some concessions, 
buy some souvenirs. That unique period of an intermission. Well, in the book of Revelation, we come to a few similar events. These unique intermissions where the dramatic account in Revelation kind of comes to a pause. What's taking place on the earth isn't advancing chronologically, but an opportunity to catch a breath, to reflect on what's happened, and then prepare for what's to come. There's a few of these in the book of Revelation. You could call it an intermission. Others would refer to it as an interlude. A few weeks ago, we had the opportunity to walk you through the first interlude back in Revelation chapter 7. You can flip back there for just a moment. Again, as all the events in Revelation are unfolding, first that initial vision that John has, seeing Christ, then in chapter 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches, then from chapter 4 on, how we look ahead to the far future and The account unfolds of what it is that will take place in the future. There's the scene of the throne in chapter 4. There's the scene of the lamb in chapter 5 taking the scroll and how he begins to then unravel the seals. The seals then begin the form of judgment of what's going to take place on the earth. And if you remember in chapter 7, between the sixth seal... In the seventh seal, there was that intermission, an interlude, where we rise up out of what's taking place, dramatic events. John sees an angel and uh, speaking to other angels, holding back the winds. He then hears of this group of the 144,000 those saved from the nation of Israel. And then how he looks and he beholds this great massive multitude there in heaven, all praising the Lord, all awaiting for the judgment to continue. To simply see God's glory upheld, injustice righted, those who would stand against the Lord for them to be put into their place. So then from chapter 7 on, you then go to the seventh seal, but as the seventh seal's open, then we're introduced to more judgments that are taking place. The trumpets. Seven, again, signifying completeness, perfection. That's how great this judgment is. And last time, Pastor Kevin walked through these incredible and intense trumpet judgments. I mean, some unbelievable things in chapter 8 and chapter 9. How intense that judgment will be upon the earth in this period known as the Great Tribulation. Again, a seven-year period all leading up to what we'll see later in Revelation, finally the return of Christ in the beginning of his millennial reign here on the earth. But before that takes place, in this tribulation, there's these intense judgments. First, the seals, then the trumpets. But we ended last time 
ending with the sixth trumpet. And then we come to this intermission, this interlude. That really tonight, it begins in chapter 10, verse 1. It's going to stretch all the way into chapter 11 uh, through verse 14. Then in chapter 11, verse 15, that's where the seventh trumpet will resume and will be sounded. And again, a brief preview of coming attractions. Then in a little bit, we'll be introduced to the bowl judgments. Again, seven total, even more intense than these trumpet judgments that are even more intense than the seal judgments. But John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he sees and as he writes, in God's wisdom, we come to these moments where there's a little bit of a pause in intermission. An opportunity maybe for John to catch his breath with all that he's seen. By extension, an opportunity for you and for I to catch our breath and reflect on what's taken place as we then await what's to come. And in this interlude, this intermission, that tonight we're just going to walk through chapter 10, again, John is going to see some incredible things that are meant to minister to him and to true believers. So let's read through the entirety of chapter 10 to get our bearings with this interlude, at least the beginning of it. And then we'll walk through tonight in in two parts, two sections. That's how the chapter divides up. Revelation chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud. And the rainbow was upon his head, his face was like the sun, his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book, which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land, and he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken. And do not write them. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished, as he preached to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, Go, take the book 
which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book, and he said to me, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And in my mouth, it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, You must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Revelation chapter 10, preparing for destruction. What is going on in this brief interlude? Well, as I mentioned, this chapter breaks down into two parts. The first part that we see in verses 1 through 7, we'll label it this, the angel's great announcement. The angel's great announcement. When we begin the chapter and we look at verse 1, again we hear these two words very familiar throughout Revelation. When John records, I saw, again, cluing us in, this is now another vision. Maybe not moving forward chronologically, but at least the book is moving forward. That what John sees in this chapter is set apart and distinct from what we've just covered. Again, helping us understand why this would be considered an interlude. Taking place between the sixth trumpet and taking place before the seventh trumpet. So John, in this vision, he writes, I saw, and we read, another strong angel coming down out of heaven. And again, as we've seen in Revelation, we have to think visually, almost as if we're going to put up the, the big screen and try to visualize and picture what it is that's taking place. John, from his perspective, seemingly now looks like he's back on the earth whether it's him literally back again on Patmos or in this vision in some other location, he looks, he sees, and what is it that gets his attention? This unbelievable sight. This unbelievable figure. A massive figure. The text tells us it's another strong angel. Notice, coming down out of heaven. And then the description that's given for this figure. Try to picture it. Clothed with a cloud. The rainbow was upon his head. His face was like the sun. His feet like pillars of fire. If that doesn't get your attention we see there's something very unique that he's holding, a little book in his hand that's open. 
And yet this figure, described in this way, is absolutely massive because it says he places one foot on the sea and the other foot on the land. As if you and I were to step outside tonight and look over in the sky and see this unbelievably massive being that with no effort puts forward one foot on the waters, on the sea, puts forward the other foot on the land. And some have read this and have been so amazed by it that they think and they write, wow, the description here? John must be seeing and beholding the second person of the Godhead, God the Son, Jesus Christ. But we look at the account and we read that it says it's another strong angel. Yet others, again, looking back to the account and the description here, reason, well, it sure sounds like this is Jesus in his glory. Some of the descriptors sound like what we've heard earlier about him. And after all, if we go back to the Old Testament, there are those few instances where we have that figure. Do you remember the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord? What seems to be a pre-incarnation, pre-Bethlehem manifestation of God the Son. Now, there are some good individuals who think that that's who this is. I believe, though, that they are mistaken. In fact, I was quite disturbed by one commentator as I was reading through him on this account where he was reasoning and surmising that perhaps here in this account, uh, Jesus is reverting to uh, his pre-incarnate state without realizing it, this commentator doing great damage to our understanding of the incarnation. Now listen, from Bethlehem forward, God the Son, again, the, the miracle of what takes place in Bethlehem, God the Son, with his divine nature, takes on and assumes a human body with a human nature that in the one person of Christ, existing now from that point for all time into the future, one person with two natures in hypostatic union. A miracle that will never be repeated had never happened before and will never be repeated again. No, rather, there's a few things in the account that clue us in this really cannot be Jesus. What might those reasons be? Well, let's rattle off a few of them. Again, just so we're clear here. First, when John sees this figure, it describes him as coming down out of heaven and placing one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. If we were to take this as Jesus, God the Son, suddenly we don't really know what we're going to do with what's referred to as the second coming that's going to occur later in Revelation. 
And maybe some of you think, yeah, but what about the rapture? Well, if we're going to be specific, in the rapture, he doesn't descend and touch his feet back on the earth. You might say, well, you're splitting hairs there. Well, the text matters, and it says he doesn't come to the earth. He descends into the air and returns back to heaven with his people. And here in the account, coming down out of heaven, this figure places one foot on the sea, places the other foot on the land. So protecting what is the second coming, that's one reason why can't be Jesus. Not only that, nowhere in Revelation is God the Son, Jesus, referred to as an angel. You won't find that. Though there are many titles and descriptions for Jesus in Revelation. If I remember, I think more than any other book in the New Testament. In such a manifold way is his glory put on display, but never referred to as an angel. Similarly, nowhere in the New Testament does it refer to him as an angel. Again, the angel of the Lord, unique to the Old Testament before Bethlehem. You'll notice as we read through the account, this figure, uh, when he stands upon the earth, he raises his hand and he swears and takes an oath by God in heaven as if this is a figure created, inferior, beneath God, something that's not true for God the Son, co-equal, co-eternal with God the Father. No. When you look back to verse 1, and when your Bible tells you another strong angel, the Greek there is very specific, another of the same kind. Meaning, we've seen some angels already in Revelation. We've even heard of and seen a strong angel in chapter 5, verse 2. And here now, there is another, similar to that strong angel in chapter 5, verse 2, of the same kind, of the same class. Who might it be? Again, we can't give a name or a label to it because the text doesn't give that. Simply to say, John looks, he beholds, and of God's created angelic beings. Here is another that's brought out on display, so incredible in appearance. Again, coming from God's throne and around his presence... And since God is this great and God is this glorious, any creature that's going to be near him is going to move away and still reflect and have an afterglow to God because he's that great. Think Moses in the Old Testament when he gets to go up on the mountain And there God descends, and in this unique way, Moses and Moses alone is there near, close to God and his glory. And when Moses comes back down the mountain, do you remember the issue with Moses' face? It was glowing. 
reflecting and giving off the glory simply because God is that great and glorious. So again, another of these angelic figures. By the way, quite a different picture of an angel than the way people typically think of angels, right? Cute, chubby little baby. Maybe a couple of wings, a bow and an arrow. Seems to make an appearance around Valentine's Day. Now here, another strong angel who comes down out of heaven. Again, you're John. You're seeing this. Your human finite capacity is trying to take this in and then write it. Here's this angelic figure coming down and clouds are his clothing, signifying his power and his might. There's a rainbow on his head, not the rainbow from chapter 4 that's around the throne and emerald in appearance. No, a rainbow like you and I know it. All the colors on display as if it's his halo or his, his little hat as he comes down. John tries to look at his face, but it's glorious as the sun, bright and brilliant, And then he looks to his feet, and each one seems to be a massive pillar of fire. And again, just so subtly, one foot goes onto the sea, the other foot goes onto the land. And you know, I'll be honest with you, I spent some time this afternoon trying to look up the statistics for how large our atmosphere is. And potentially, how how tall this figure could be. By the way, there are several layers to our atmosphere, and it does go quite up high. Whatever it might be, John sees in dominating the scene, is this angel? Again, as we see the rainbow, that clues us in of the first instance of the rainbow, back with the flood, that amidst judgment, there can still be mercy. Important for us to see in a moment. So, this great angel, with his great announcement that he's going to make in just a moment, he comes down, he steps down, he places his foot on the sea, his foot on the land, signifying as he's been sent by God, he has this authority over both locations, really over the earth here. And yet John's eyes drawn to, again, the contrast is kind of funny, how big the angel is, but in his hand is this little tiny little book, and the book's open. John sees that. But then quickly he's startled because this angel cries out with a loud voice, as when a lion roars. Loud, intense, majestic. Again, this is just one of God's creations. We can think, what does the creation reveal about the creator? John hears the the angel roaring similar to a lion. And then 
he hears seven peals of thunder. And yet amidst the thunder, there's information that's being revealed. Again, maybe for all other people, if they're seeing this same vision, they're just hearing thunder. But for John, as the thunder erupts and gives off its mighty sound, it's like they're uttering their voices and John is hearing what they're saying. And again, John, going back to the beginning of Revelation, he's commanded the things that you see, write. John, trying to be a faithful scribe, tries to begin writing, but suddenly he's stopped. A voice coming out of heaven, likely God himself, commands him, seal up these things and do not write them. We think about it for a moment tonight. Makes us think of Deuteronomy 29, 29. Secret things belong to the Lord. That God has spoken truly, but he hasn't fully revealed everything to us. Sometimes you and I are wanting to know those secret things, but that's reserved. That's the prerogative for the creator, not for the creature. And John here has an example for us. Follows what the Lord says. Does not write whatever it is that's communicated by means of the thunder. Again, some people ask, well, okay, what is it that John hears? What is it that the thunder's communicating? We don't know. John does. But he's commanded to not write it down. But instead, now the angel whom he sees... Standing on the sea, verse 5, standing on the land, lifts up his right hand to heaven and swore by him, notice the description, who lives forever and ever, who created heaven, the earth, and the sea, and all the things in each one. This angel lifts up his hand, swears an oath by none other than the eternal creator, God himself. Eternal, no beginning, no end, outside of time, beyond time, not bound by time. And the one, notice all the domains here, heaven, earth, and the sea. He's the one who's created them and all the things in it. You know, it's interesting the number of times writers of Scripture will think and appeal to the fact that God is the creator. Something that if you and I, with our view of Scripture, soften on, we begin to lose a lot of the power and thrust that the Bible is trying to communicate. Again, where is that creation account given? 
back at the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, where there, by means of Moses, many years later, God, the only one being there present at creation, reveals to Moses exactly what took place, six literal 24-hour days where God shows off his power, and by clear account, it's established, it's his world, his domain, his heaven, his earth, his sea, and all the things in it. By that sheer fact, he's the sovereign ruler, it's his way, his world, his law, his standard. He gets what he wants. For believers, something that ought to be a comfort to us. And he swears by this eternal creator. And here's what it is that he begins to reveal in this great announcement. The end of verse 6. That there will be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished. As he preached to his servants, the prophets. The great announcement that this angel makes as he swears by the eternal creator who sent this angel and gives him this unique position of authority and has in his hand this little book that in a moment John is going to interact with, that John hears this announcement that there will be delay no longer. Delay of what? Yes, judgment has begun But now in a moment when that seventh trumpet is sounded, then without pause, with no more delay, all the judgment will continue. All things are heading to what is this ultimate consummation when finally, at last, the mystery of God is finished. And what mystery is this? Some of it he's preached to his servants, the prophets, taking us back to the Old Testament. What is going on here? What is this announcement and why is it so great? The announcement is really an answer to that question posed by the martyrs back in chapter 6. How long, O Lord? It's the answer to the prayers of the saints around the throne in chapter 8. It's that this judgment is going to be fully unleashed so very soon and nothing can thwart it and nothing can stop it. And even as it's unveiled and as it continues, the mystery of God, again, things that God at certain times keeps hidden, certain truths he keeps hidden, but then in time he reveals. 
that the fullness of this is soon about to be consummated. Aspects of which he had revealed and preached to his servants, the prophets. Again, it takes us back to the Old Testament. What is it in the Old Testament that we learn about what's going to come in the far future beyond the time of the New Testament, beyond even our time, things that Revelation is giving more detail to. Well, that there's coming this full day of the Lord. That in this day of the Lord, there will be this fullness of God's holy judgment. Or thinking to Daniel, what was revealed to Daniel, the 69 weeks and then the 70th week that's taking place in this tribulation. Or in Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, why not I throw in Joel, Amos, and Zechariah? All of them in different ways and yet not totally, fully complete, revealing the truth that there is going to come a kingdom that will be established on this earth. A real kingdom where God will reign and all will see and recognize who is the true ruler. Again, aspects of it recorded in the Old Testament, but of course more of the mystery revealed in the New Testament. Think of the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, what Jesus reveals. Think later to a book like 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and 2, more details are revealed. Think even to what it is we've been walking through already in Revelation, and then looking ahead, what's going to take place in chapter 11 all the way through 19, when then finally we will see that second coming of Christ. And then in chapter 20, this kingdom, Christ's earthly millennial kingdom, how that will be established on this earth. This indeed is a great announcement. Again, putting yourself in John's shoes, he's there on Patmos, obscure and in exile, separated from all other believers, being punished by Roman rule. Maybe thinking, is evil and injustice going to win? Or fast forward through the ages, how believers have faced all manifold forms of persecution. Being singled out and isolated and punished, some even martyred. Is this going to have the final word? Or for us here today, tonight? Thinking back on the last two years and how things have so rapidly changed and you and I feel quite different and more and more like the outcasts in the world. Reality is that's been the case for most believers for the last 2,000 years. But the great announcement, there will be delay no longer. All's about to continue. 
All the judgment's going to be unleashed. And then God's kingdom will be established. Now that's the angel's great announcement. But we said there's a second part. The chapter continues in verses 8 through 11. We'll label this section here, John's Great Appetite. Can you remember that contrast? How big this angelic being is? But somehow John's eagle eye vision, well, like any good person drawn to see a book, it's okay, you can chuckle on that. He sees this book, notice it is open, It is a little book. Yes, setting apart uh, the angel from what's in his hand, apparently in his left hand, if he only has two hands, because his right hand is lifted as he swears, takes an oath. Some again have wondered, okay, is this little book, is this the same as what was revealed at the beginning of chapter 5? The scroll there that God the Father has, that only the only person worthy to take it and open it is the Lamb. Some think that. I'm not quite there. I, I think it is a distinct book, some of which is simply by the descriptor there, little, several times in this account, different than what is given back in chapter 5. Though one time it will use the same descriptor, I believe in verse 8. But I think there's enough of a difference by means of that label. Again, in the original, it's a different term. It seems like this is a, a different book, not that same scroll. Again, uh, From my perspective, it seems awkward for this scroll that no one is worthy to take except God the Son from God the Father, for that suddenly to be passed to an angel that then John himself is going to take. If this original scroll back in chapter 5 is so great and majestic that only Jesus is worthy to take it and open it, it seems to me like this is something different, the contents of which likely... It's what's going to be recorded from this point forward with the judgment that's going to take place. Why do we bring up all this attention about the book? Well, look at verse 8. John hears the voice out of heaven, commands John, go, take the book, which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. Maybe a little bit of an amusing sight, how big this angel is, and you got uh, little John somehow approaching this angel, taking this little book, and John is commanded, take it and eat it. What's going on here? Well, if we think back to the Old Testament, this isn't something totally new and novel here. If you go back to the prophet Ezekiel, when Ezekiel began his ministry, there was a similar occurrence 
where he was given a book, he was given a word, a scroll, and Ezekiel was commanded, take it and eat it. You can read about it in chapter 2 and in chapter 3 in Ezekiel. Similarly, though not as much detail is given, Jeremiah seems to have a similar experience where he also takes God's word, again, as both of them are prophets entrusted with God's word that they're to take and to eat, that both of them do that. And for them, they both recount, your words, Lord, were sweet to me. In similar fashion, John, in that same vein, like a prophet uh, foretelling what's going to come, he's to take this little book and its contents, he's commanded to take it and eat it. Is he literally eating, uh, you know, the, the paper here? Well, again, back at this time, it's not a book like you and I think of it that was a later invention. Is he literally eating this tiny little scroll? Possibly. But more likely, this is just a way of communicating. You are to take God's word. You are to absorb it, John. You're to assimilate it. You're to so take it in to the totality of your being. But he's given the warning up front. In your mouth... It's going to be sweet like honey. But as it begins to work its way down and as it begins to be digested and makes its way into the stomach, that sweetness is going to be turned to bitterness. So John, obeying the voice that he hears out of heaven, verse 10, I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. Tastes sweet, but then John gets a stomach ache. As one commentator put it, this book, as John takes it and eats it, it both gladdens and saddens. Again, what is it that's going on here? Well, in verse 11, we're told, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. John here, like a prophet, he's already been commissioned back in chapter 1 But it's as if here he's being now recommissioned. You're in this interlude, John. You're catching your breath. You're regathering yourself. But now you're going to move forward and you have to continue recording what's here and prophesying to all of these groups. Nobody's excluded. Peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. And whatever it is that's in the content of this, at first for John, it's sweet, sweet like honey. Again, in in an environment where sugars and everything, we miss what sweetness was like back in the ancient world. 
or things, maybe if you were rich and had access to spices, you could really enjoy a meal. But if not, on the rare occasion you tasted something with honey, oh boy, it was sweet. So enjoyable. But then how quickly for John it turns in his stomach and remains there. It's making him sick. It's bitter. There's a visceral reaction here. And what is it that's causing this? Quite simply, going back to that announcement, there's not going to be a delay any longer. Judgment's going to continue. Soon and very soon, the mystery's going to be finished. The consummation's going to arrive. The kingdom will be here. Christ will reign. And for John, as he contemplates that initially, how sweet, how wonderful, what good news. The truth of the Lord's reign Again, something that really all believers ought to long for, wanting Christ to return. Isn't that what we hear from the Apostle Paul? Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. How true believers, seeing things from a spiritual perspective, when God's name is defiled, when God's glory is drugged down into the mud... How we want to call out, rise up, O Lord. Vindicate yourself. Bring sin, bring evil, bring all this injustice to an end. That all will finally see God is exalted. How sweet that is. But in order for that to happen, the events that will lead up to this, it finally sinks in for John. Yes, God's glory is displayed and manifested in his judgment. but this does mean that God's enemies are going to be stomped. They're going to be defeated. That those who would stand defiantly against this God, those who would continue to reject Christ and look upon his people and mock them and seek to treat them the way that he first was treated in his first coming, that all of those who would continue in that defiant state, their doom is sure. And yes, John is going to have to continue prophesying and recording and revealing for us even what's going to take place. I mean, we've seen these seal judgments and six of the trumpet judgments, but there's going to be a seventh, and then these bowl judgments. Such an intensity of God's wrath poured out on this earth. 
that John understands this and can rejoice and yet also realize friends are going to be included in that. Family members are going to be included in that. Men, women, boys, girls. Each one given ample opportunity, ample time, every opportunity to surrender in repentance and in humility to this God. And yet seemingly refusing to do just that. Many peoples, many nations, many tongues, many kings. And for John, as he thinks about it, again, it it is sweet to think about the Lord returning and reigning. And yet there's still that element for him as he digests this. This is hard to swallow. This is bitter. Not that in any way God can be accused of wrongdoing. Oh no, you and I cannot accuse this God in that way. Like the vessel of clay calling out to the uh, creator. Romans chapter 9 reveals to us, you and I are never in a position to question this God in that way. But for John in this interlude, it's both bittersweet. Now the interlude's going to continue into chapter 11, the first 14 verses. And then the chronology is going to resume with the seventh trumpet. And we're going to see some even more intense Wickedness on display on this earth. Satanically inspired even. Preparing for this destruction. There will come this destruction. And even by means of that rainbow from the angel. There's still that opportunity. To be delivered. And we walk through this account tonight and we think, okay, another interesting vision taking place in the far future. But I'm not there. I didn't see this with John. Well, perhaps we can have that same response that John has. Longing for the Lord's return. Recognizing that this world isn't ultimately our home. That the conditions here, they're not yet what we're awaiting. That we do long for the Lord to return. We ought to pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. That we ought to pray, your kingdom come. And even mean that in a real physical sense. And yet in our hearts that there still ought to be that same response. 
bitterness, pain, that we're not so calloused to unbelievers, so hardened by the many times they've rejected our presenting Christ to them. Resorting back to our theology and growing quite cold. As said, has been said before, even in an environment like this that cherishes truths like the doctrines of grace, only in an environment like this could we fall into that wicked error known as hyper-Calvinism. God's sovereign, he'll save whom he will. Let unbelievers reject Christ. Let them perish. Have you and I grown into practical hypers like that? Yes, there is the passage. We ought to be careful to not present pearls before swine. And we need wisdom for situations like that. Yes, we do remember from 2 Corinthians that we are the aroma of Christ with the gospel that we present. To some, it is an aroma of life to life. For some, it will be an aroma from death to death. It will both save and it will both harden and confirm in their unbelief. And yet, do you remember the example of our Savior? as he's about to enter into Jerusalem right before he's crucified. What his response was. How he weeps over Jerusalem. How I would have gathered you together and yet you refused. Oh, dear Christian, tonight let us think and ponder these same truths. Aspects of which, yes, they are sweet. They are given by God. And yet we understand what that judgment will mean and whom, what will happen to those whom reject the Lord. You know, as we end tonight, it makes me think of something Paul Washer once said, heard some years ago. It's as if God seemingly holds up two hands. With one, he holds back his wrath. With the other, he pleads and he beckons for unbelievers to come to him to be saved. And how patient he is with people who reject him. Every day, another opportunity Every breath, another chance. Yet Washer said there will come a day when both hands will drop. And soon we're going to see that on display in Revelation. Father, we thank you for the truth in Scripture, truth that comes from you, given to us, that we are not to tamper with, that we are not to alter, we're not to apologize for, we're not to soften. 
To do that would to assume the authority that you alone have upon your throne. But Lord, we admit there are times that these truths, they, they are easy to understand and yet hard for us to swallow. Perhaps we've missed how holy you really are. Becoming too friendly and too accustomed to sin. and Forgetting how great and holy you are. And in missing that, missing how wicked and how sinful sin is. As one Christian put it, Lord, help us to look upon sin the way it will be seen on the last day. When it will be brought forward and it will be unmasked and that which once appeared so lovely and beautiful will then on that day appear most vile and most filthy. Help us, Lord, to rightly understand what it means that you're holy and sovereign and that you can exercise your sovereignty both in salvation and in judgment. Lord, we can understand these things intellectually, but help us not to understand them clinically and coldly. But Lord, in light of this, in light of even this sure announcement that the delay will occur no longer, that judgment is certain, that with the breath that we have, the life that you've given us, that we would be your ambassadors, that we would go wherever it is that you would have us, across the world or across Winston-Salem, That as we open up our mouths and we proclaim what Christ has done and how people can be reconciled to God, that we can take courage. It's not merely us speaking, but you speaking through us. Be ye reconciled to God. Oh, help us, Lord. We need grace. Thank you that you give it in abundance. We look to you now, asking for help as we go about this evening and prepare for tomorrow, as we would be wise to prepare for this coming destruction. We ask this in your name. Amen.